This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of American Enough is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Hey, everybody, this is Vikram Iyer with American Enough, and we have a special episode brought to you by South by Southwest, the amazingly multifaceted and incredibly creative festival going on starting this week, March 9th in Austin, Texas, featuring everything from uh, new budding technologies and startups to uh, films and, and, and musical performances and just really, really awesome people huddling together over the next couple of weeks in Texas. Um, I'm going to be heading out there myself. Uh, American Enough will be doing a live episode show on Sunday, March 11th at 11 a.m. at the Fairmont. Um, if you're out there, uh, please do come by. Uh, if, if you're not out there, um, we can FaceTime you in uh, or however however you want to participate, but the episode uh, will go live. The whole Mouth Media team will be out there as well. So we're really, really, really excited um, to have American Enough live at South by Southwest. And given that South by Southwest stands for um, a, a really unique curation of community between technologists, entrepreneurs, um, uh, like-minded inspirers, and, and differently-minded tinkerers all coming together, um, we have a special episode for you today featuring a, a, a candidate who came from the technology community, who is an entrepreneur herself, was an early employee at eBay, helped Google stand up their philanthropic arm, helped the micro-lending organization Grameen Bank um, provide targeted credit loans and credit lines to the rural poor across other countries in the world. And now she's, she's running for office. So um, truly in the spirit of South by Southwest, we're going to find out a little bit more about why Rachel Payne, a candidate from the California 48th district has decided to step out of private life and lean into public life and really examine what it means to be an American candidate under the auspices of these times. And, and as a female candidate recently endorsed by Emily's List, the, the national and prominent uh, women's group that, that focuses on electing women to public office, um, she will also reflect a little bit about what it means to be a female candidate and represent that aspect of the community without sacrificing any expenses to other aspects of the community. So we're really, really excited to bring you this special episode of American Enough brought to you by South by Southwest. And come see us live. Uh, visit southbysouthwest.com where you can purchase a badge, not just to see me, but check out other more awesome cats out there. Um, it's, just, it's just worth it. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. Um, come see us, South by Southwest, this Sunday, March 11th, Fairmont Hotel. See you soon. While American identity has always been informed by a pursuit for challenging convention, challenging authority, and striving for a more perfect union by asking why or why not, this is a particularly unique inflection point in American history where more people are coming out of the woodwork, not just to protest, not just to tweet, not just to mobilize, not just to call their elected officials, but also to come out of the shadows of private life and step into, into the sunshine of public life and run for office. Rachel Payne has had an incredible career navigating entrepreneurship, technology, and philanthropy. 
born in San Bernardino, California, in a, to a working class family. When she was young, she moved to Las Vegas, where her father became a union operating engineer. And at a young age, worked with her, or went on to live with her mom after her parents divorced and witnessed as her mother supported their entire family and her sisters and siblings while working multiple jobs. Despite that upbringing in which you would necessarily could see someone being uh, encumbered by a, a, the harsh outlook of economic uh, challenges in the country, uh, Rachel went on to win numerous scholarships worked several part-time jobs, and took out loans to be the first person in her family to go to college. From there, she had a wave of success in private life. Throughout a career in technology, she leveraged entrepreneurship and leadership roles to pioneer early tech across the internet and later at groundbreaking Fortune 100 companies, where she witnessed how technology could not only advance the, and transform the economy, but also help out daily challenges of everyday life. After returning to school at the Stanford School of Business, she went on to leverage that entrepreneurial spirit for social impact, leveraging microfinancing uh, efforts and, and financial arrangements and providing financial services across low-income individuals in Latin America and Africa. And then after that, ended up becoming a founding team member of Google.org, the philanthropic arm of Google, an alphabet company. So one might ask, Given the fact that she has stared challenges in the face with her upbringing, given the fact that she's ch stared challenges in the face by starting up brand new efforts in the private sector and in the philanthropic sector to really try and make a difference, why now would she lean into public life as a candidate for U.S. Congress? This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. Rachel Payne, thanks for joining American Enough. Thank you, Vikram. And thank you so much for having this dialogue, which we need in this country. It's really a pleasure to be here. My desire to run for Congress, as you very well pointed out, has more to do with the experience I bring and having lived firsthand many of the challenges that face so many people here in America, uh, whether it's you know people struggling to make ends meet or trying to afford a college education or just trying to create a better life for themselves and their families, I can say with true sincerity that I've been there. I know what it's like. I know how hard it is. And I can also see the opportunities to make it better and easier for more Americans to succeed in this country and to level the playing field in important ways where even more people can get a good education and create a life for themselves that allows them to maximize their full potential. And, you know, I, I want to kind of start with with where this story begins, because as you've been out there on the trail, um, you, you've been, you know, you've traveled the world, um, certainly calling California home, but you've spent time in other countries, in other parts of the United States. I'm curious how you sort of see your upbringing, um, whether it was your father being uh, a union member on the labor side, or seeing your mom stand strong in holding down multiple jobs and, and raising a family in a, in a single parent household. Um, how has 
those experiences um, sort of motivated you day to day? And then con contrast that now to how you see how those experiences are resonating when you meet other families that might either be in similar circumstances or entirely different circumstances, but going through some of the challenges that you face in childhood. When I watched my mother struggle as a single mom raising three kids, it gave me a very deep and profound respect for what so many single parent headed households are dealing with. And when a child of divorce is raised by a single parent who has to work multiple jobs, in some ways you lose not just one parent, but both parents because they are trying to make ends meet and their time is, is precious. And so it, it both required me to have a sense of independence and will to create the kind of path I needed because I didn't have the kind of time with both of my parents that maybe, you know, children who don't come from that background have. And so it required a, a type of self-reliance and responsibility that I think has served me tremendously well throughout my life. Yeah. I am also very close with my siblings. And there's a there's a bond there that comes from having, you know, been through an experience like that together. And the kind of um, connection that we have has also supported all of us throughout the years. When I look at my mom and what she was able to do, it makes me proud of her. It makes me so proud that she was able to be so strong when it was so hard. And it tells me that even when times are difficult, I have it inside of me that I know too that I can be strong the way she was despite the odds. And when I look at my father and the path he was on and how joining the union changed his life, you know, he, he struggled too, you know, when he was trying to figure out what he wanted to do in his life and the career he wanted to pursue, it was very difficult for him to find his path. But when he went through the apprenticeship and became a journeyman and, you know, became part of a union, he had a path, he had structure, he had um, a way to advance. And importantly, he had benefits and a great paying job. And, you know, in, even today, he, he still benefits from that because of his pension. And it really did transform his life. And so I know what that means to working class families when they've been struggling and they now have an opportunity to become part of something bigger, to have a structure in place that can support them, to have an opportunity to develop their skills and train in areas where there's high growth and good paying jobs. It really makes all the difference. And so I, I've, seen, I've seen that transformation in both of their lives. And I also know what it means to have to rely on yourself to be strong and to come up with your own sense of purpose and to identify for yourself the path to get there. And I think that's what I learned as a young child and how I was able to do things that were a pretty big departure from what was expected, from what was normal, and from, uh, I think, the the environment I was in, um, the opportunities that, that many of my peers pursued. It was quite a departure from all of those things. And I think it comes from a very deep sense of, my own abilities, the capabilities I was able to develop, my capacity for growth and learning, and just a general belief in myself. And I don't think enough people, especially young women, have that cultivated in them. 
Um, and I do think I, I, I have to give a lot of credit to my family for believing in me and supporting me. Um, everyone from my grandparents to my siblings to my parents who said, you know, really, Rachel, it's up to you to be who you want in this world. And you need to make that path for yourself. And, and yeah. I'm very thankful for that. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's a really, really important reflection because, you know, on this podcast where we talk about American identity, it's fascinating to me to observe what that identity of American candidates look like right now as as we see more and more of a new generation running for Congress or running for elected life in general. But start and, – and I want to you know get to some of the policy specifics in a minute, but reflecting a bit more on – kind of what you derive from your family's circumstances. You know, I, I was, um, when, when I was quite young, my biological mom passed away from breast cancer and my dad remarried shortly thereafter. And, and that mother who raised us is, is very much uh, a mom to my brother and I. And so there was always this uh, reflection of um, making sure that you respected and understood not only the role of accepting family, no matter you know how they were brought into your lives, but also respecting and understanding the role of strong females and strong women in your life. And I think that for me day to day, that's given me a lot of insight in the way that I just approach respecting my mom to um, engaging others in the workplace and so on and so forth. And I wanted to share that simply because as as you reflect on how much strength you derive from what you saw your mom and, and dad do, um, but particularly as a female candidate, um, now more and more, we see candidates are sort of um, expected to own a pocket of the demographic. And by that, I mean, you know, for for Barack Obama, he stood for many values and many ideas, um, but to certain communities, maybe communities that felt that they would never see someone who looked like them in public office, he represented an inspiration of hope. For other communities, Donald Trump represented a rebuke of of maybe what they thought was all too often favoring just a limited few or favoring those who had a value system that was deemed progressive, but maybe wasn't what they felt day to day. So Donald Trump represented sort of a pocket of hope and a specific audience for them. As a, as a woman candidate um, who represents many things and seeks to represent every single human in a district, not just women, but specifically as a woman candidate, do you see a added sense of responsibility that you need to step up and lean in to fighting on behalf of single mothers, women in the workplace, more women in the work uh, in the on the boardroom, and so forth, in a in a way that's unique or distinct now, given sort of the the tone and tenor of the treatment of women in the Me Too movement over the last year, or do you see that as sort of just one slice of the pie of representing the overall community? First of all, Vikram, I, I just want to express my condolences to you for um, what you shared with me, and I'm oh no, no, no I appreciate about that. your mother, and I, I would like to share too that um, when I was six, my father had remarried, and I had the gift of an amazing woman enter my life. Her name was Susan, and she was my stepmother. And while um, you know they were only married until I was 13, she stayed in my life as my stepmother. And just last year, she passed away, and it was oh, really I'm so sorry. Found loss. Thank you. Um, but I would say the gift that she gave me was really about tapping into my higher self and that hope and that compassion, and really respecting other people and having a sense of kindness in the world. And I bring that 
to the question you just posed me, because I think that's what's missing right now in our political discourse. And I credit Susan for, um, you know, obviously all of my parents have those qualities, but it was really Susan who helped me come, become aware of that in myself in a way that was very special. And we are lacking a sense of decency and respect and integrity and kindness and compassion in this political environment. And we need that. We need that as a society. We need that as a civilization. And when you ask about who I'm representing in the district, I am running to represent everyone here. But right now, the voices of women are silenced in this administration. They're berated. Women are being treated in ways that are not just disrespectful, but that undermine the value and importance of who we are in this country. So yes, I am running as a woman. I'm not only a woman, but that is absolutely an important part of why we need more representation of people like me, not just because I'm a woman, but because my lived experience as a woman is a, is a voice and a perspective that's fundamental and critical at this moment in time. And we need to stand against the kinds of politics that are divisive and that are pointing fingers at populations that are well-meaning, well-intentioned, and contributing members of our society. And instead, we need to embrace the fact that everyone here deserves respect. Yeah, and that respect and decency and reclaiming that, I think, couldn't be more foundational in this moment in time. Um, especially because if we are seeing more and more new candidates enter the arena and, and more folks step out of um, their private lives to to engage public need, uh, we want to make sure that we inspire a future generation of folks to get off the bench too. Um, uh, whether that's uh, a changing of a guard of folks your age or my age, or we're talking about the the students of Stoneman uh, Douglas High School in Florida getting more politically involved, or frankly, just you know, a sixth grader or seventh grader that may not be paying attention to politics, but is witnessing and observing the sort of indecency and the brash rhetoric that we've seen from not just the administration, but frankly, even a number of congressional races and special elections over the last year. So I ask you a fairly loaded question, um, but a simple one. How do we restore decency in, in, in the political space? And, and, and not to sound like a cynic, but just to be candid with you, as, as someone who seeks to, to run for the California's, uh, California's 48th Congressional District, um, one voice out of you know, a few hundred in Congress, uh, is that going to be an effective means by way of restoring faith in public service? To truly address this, we actually need to take a multi-pronged approach. We cannot just say that we need to live by example and lead by example, which I do think is important. <clears throat> we also have to look at the root cause and why people are behaving the way that they are. So in this environment, there's no ac accountability for bad behavior. In this environment, we have a leader who has demonstrated that he can not only act in ways that are disrespectful and crude, but he can be a sexual predator and have no accountability, no blowback, no punishment for his behavior. And what we saw with the Me Too mo movement is entirely the opposite. And I do think that's going to catch up to everyone in politics very soon as well. Yeah. But with the Me Too movement, what we finally saw was recourse for victims, 
what we saw was power in numbers. And what happens when women and people who've been harassed and discriminated against come together and stand strong and say no more, and then take actions with the support of our legal institutions to get that kind of accountability and justice. And that's what we're missing on the political front. We are not having the kind of um, due process that victims need at the highest level. And in addition, so that's one prong, right, which is the, the, the issue of accountability and recourse. But secondly, we also need to look at what's happening in the media. The, the rhetoric has normalized this behavior. It has made um, and emboldened this discriminatory language and the, the really, um, I, I would say, again, it's, it's crude and brutish uh, language that is aimed at women, people of color, and vulnerable populations. And again, there's no accountability. And instead, it's sound bites that get repeated over and over and over again, which further normalizes it in our society and desensitizes people to this language. The more we repeat the quotes, the sound bites that are devastatingly ignorant and are um, you know, racist or sexist, the more we normalize it and the more we make people who hold positions, points of view of bias and prejudice, we make them emboldened and we give them a platform to further perpetuate this messaging. So the third issue is around that underlying bias and prejudice. And that has a lot to do with power. When we look at how people who have traditionally benefited from positions of privilege because of their race, because of their gender, are in a position now where they're fighting to keep that power and privilege and they don't want to see change happen. The easiest way to beat down people who are trying to get ahead is to further alienate them, to objectify them, especially women, and to use racist and other epithets that help that have that perpetuate harmful stereotypes and limiting beliefs about these people about these populations and in doing so play into stereotypes that weaken their position in society so it's those three areas that we need to address we absolutely need to lead by example and i plan to do that in congress but that's a lonely battle if we don't also look at all of these other areas that play into this way of normalizing hate in our society and emboldening bias among people who believe that it's a zero-sum game of power, which it is not. And part of that hate and bias has been motivated in many respects by who is deemed worthy of the American experience or not. Um, and, and that has obviously, for, for many generations, um, uh, you know, sort of vectored around the immigrant journey here. But in the last year and a half, two years, has really uh, hit a fever pitch of very public, uh, almost blusterous re rhetoric against immigrant communities, um, either because they're just deemed as illegal or that they have no um, 
uh, presence here or purpose here or because of specific policy proposals, whether it's a budget proposal or whether it's a fix for for, uh, DACA protections and DREAMers or any other sort of codified hate masquerading as legislation in between. And notably, Last month, I believe in in, uh, maybe this time a month ago in February, when a budget resolution was voted on uh, in the House, uh, the incumbent in in the California 48th Congressional District and and the gentleman that you're challenging, Dana Rohrabacher, put out a statement saying that he he did not vote for the continuing resolution uh, because there was a uh, a provision that would have created um, a lot of immigrants that, frankly, power the California 48. They believe that you have um, at least uh, 20% Latino population, um, not not to mention several other minority and immigrant groups there that may be from all corners of the globe, uh, living, working, being productive members in that community. And uh, I, I'm curious, uh, given the sort of rhetoric that we've seen around the country, and of course the position of uh, of the incumbent uh, congressman on this issue, sort of how you see that we can both overcome that hate uh, when it's sort of been deeply bled into the rhetoric of what representatives and, and constituents in that congressional district hear from their member of Congress day to day, um, and, and and what you sort of plan um, as a pivot from that position to, to not only allay the concerns of immigrants that might be in that community, but also sort of get past and move past that, that rhetoric of hate. I think it was very kind of you to call Dana Rohrabacher a gentleman. I don't think I would agree with that. <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> and, Fair point. And I, I would say that, um, you know, as a woman who's been in technology for all of my career, um, he is a person who went on the record supporting the James Damore memo saying that women don't belong in tech because we're inferior. So I find many of his statements lacking credibility and, in fact, displaying a shocking level of ignorance and denial of fact and science. Um, and I think that is, uh, again, systematic of the luxury of privilege the power, uh, the position of power that people like him have long enjoyed, and in my opinion, far too long. And, you know, in addition to that, the way in which the discussion on immigration that people like him are having distracts from the key issues. If we're really thinking about what is the threat to our national security and a threat to our economy, it's not immigrants in Orange County, California. It's the interference of a hostile foreign nation in our election that Dana Rohrabacher himself has defended. It's the role of Russia in interfering with our electoral process, denying people the right to vote by hacking into voter registration records. It's the suppression of voters that has occurred in districts across the country that are in swing states. And I think his defending of Russia is betraying both his um, benefit from uh, direct benefit financially and otherwise um, from countries like that. And in fact, he's under investigation right now for money laundering or for receiving money laundered funds um, and for his ties to Manafort. He's distracted. He is out of touch and he is um, in lockstep with Trump's policies, which again are a massive distraction. We have to remember that the way that that Trump operates in in this world is by distracting people from the real issues, deflecting his own guilt 
and his uh, potential criminality um, by creating divisiveness so that people get emotionally triggered in ways that are not necessarily rational or logical, but allow them to point the finger at others because that's easy. That's easy to do. You know what's hard? Change is hard. Competition is hard. Working hard is hard. And those are the things that require uh, all of us to step up in the 21st century and to be in a modern labor force. It's a lot easier to attack immigrants and blame them for taking our jobs when in reality, it's modernization, it's automation, it's other things that have nothing to do with immigrants that are actually a threat to the modern workforce. And it's a lot easier to sit down and complain about these others who are coming in and taking your jobs when the reality is a lot of the jobs that immigrants are doing in California are critical, necessary, and are not jobs that other people are going to do. In fact, we know that crops are dying on the vine because of the ice raids. We know that $65 billion in our economy is a direct contribution from immigrant labor. And we know that our society is better off for the diversity of perspectives and worldviews and religious freedoms that immigrants bring to our country. And the more we deny that immigration is one of the root causes of the strength and values of who we are as America, the more we are undermining our future competitiveness in the world and our standing in the world which has already been degraded tremendously. Yeah, and, and that's, that's actually such a vivid uh, component to this, which is that if there are you know, massive industries that everyday Americans, no matter where you're from, what you look like, or who or what you believe in, rely on, like our agricultural sector, like our agrarian economy, um, it's kind of a vivid point that you put there that if, if immigrants are a huge part of that, as well as several other industries, but just to take that as just one straw man example, um, and and raids or deportation or even just the, the threat that they may not be able to to go to work the next day and therefore they're inclined to, you know, cower under the shadows. Um, th that is a very poignant statement about the state of both the proposed laws, proposed budgets of this country, as well as simply the rhetoric that's targeting these folks um, or, or targeting immigrants that, that we're all uh, derivative of. Um, you know, I, I myself am the, the son of immigrants that came to this country just a, a couple of decades back. Um, and, and yet we, we sit here, um, just to double click on this issue a little bit further, we sit here um, on a very important date, March 7th. Um, yesterday, several immigrant groups on March 6th had a day of action um, to, you know, call the offices of, of their senators and their elected congressional representatives to ask about a fix um, around the deadline for, for DACA recipients, a, a policy that, that's poised to expire imminently. Um, and a few months ago, you know, I, and I say this, maybe it's easy for me to say this from the sidelines, but, you know, I, I saw the commentary that our, our leader on the Democratic Party side in the House, Nancy Pelosi, and the leader on the, the Senate side, Chuck Schumer, um, were, were working vigilantly um, and, and, you know, in earnest with the administration and, and their colleagues to try and create a fix for our dreamers. And yet we don't have one yet. And I'm, I'm curious um, when you see that both as a citizen concerned about, um, you know, these neighbors, um, are these friends of ours, these these owners of stores that we all frequent. Um, and then when you see that as a candidate, 
how does that make you feel? Does that does that resonate as a failure of leadership? Does that resonate as a failure of law? Or is that just a motivating force to, to lean in and lean in harder and, and make sure that more and more members of the California 48 hear the message of decency that you're trying to put out there? It is so upsetting. And it is a failure of our society broadly to allow this to happen outside of first peoples and native americans we are all immigrants and we have to remember that america is a unique place because of that we're not the leader or haven't been the leader of the free world because we're homogenous we're we've been the leader economically and politically and otherwise because of our diversity and when we deny that, again, we're denying our own strength. We're denying our competitive advantage in the world. We're denying the composition of populations that make us unique. And the more that we create an inclusive society and institutions that are inclusive, the more we're able to harness the talent and the potential of everyone here. And that's what actually makes us the leader in the world and what allows us to get ahead um, in so many fronts. We have to remember that almost half of all entrepreneurs and, and technology CEOs in particular are immigrants. And when we are no longer an attractive place for the best talent in the world to come, well, then we won't create the, the companies of the future and lead the world in globally scaled platforms, whether it's technology or multinational corporations or NGOs or other institutions that bring this perspective to bear in a meaningful way. I think that we're at a critical moment right now where people are being encouraged to forget their history, to forget that they've benefited from immigration, to forget that immigrants play an absolute key role in the society, to deny the fundamental American dream, to deny the promise that we make on the Statue of Liberty's footsteps. We are denying our legacy and our heritage. And when we do that, we deny our own humanity, we deny our place in the world, and we are actually cutting off the future and our prospects of the future because the world sees us as tarnished. They see the American dream as a broken promise and they see the leaders in America as out of touch and as harmful to the global society that right now is finding unanimity in so many areas from climate change to humanitarian response. And we are woefully behind. Rachel Payne is a candidate in the California 48th Congressional District and uh, is joining us for a special episode of American Enough, sponsored this week by South by Southwest. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. This special episode of American Enough is brought to you by South by Southwest, the amazingly interactive, technologically forward, culturally inspired festival taking place in Austin, Texas, kicking off this Friday, uh, March 9th. And we are going to be live at South by doing a live episode of this show. Um, it's an 
awesome, awesome episode. I'm going to be out there. The whole Mouth Media Network team is going to be out there. And we're not only going to unpack what it means to be American enough, but we're going to do so with some really special guests, including the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, an associate director of the ACLU to talk about how America's civil liberties are changing and impacting American identity right now. And Ravi Patel, the hilarious and amazingly talented actor, and most recently, the co-producer with his sister of Meet the Patels, a documentary that was distributed across Netflix, all gathered together to discuss what the role of cities are in shaping American identity, what outside third-party groups like the ACLU of Plant Parenthood, and, and, and what their role is in shaping American identity, and frankly, taking a lighthearted look at how comedy and entertainment um, is shaping our, our current dialogue as a nation as well. So South by Southwest um, is, is an amazingly awesome experience. If you can make it down there, if you're interested in attending, visit southbysouthwest.com. Um, if you can make it out by Sunday, March 11th, please do come by and see a special live episode recording um, at the Fairmont Hotel of this podcast, American Enough. Um, but if you can't, you'll be able to hear the episode um, in, in a few days after that next week. Um, and now we will get back to Rachel Payne, who as a technologist herself and an entrepreneur herself leaning into public life um, is going to unpack for us as we get started back into the conversation a little bit about what the role of technology is right now in either shaping or dividing American identity. Uh, so, so Rachel, I actually am curious from your perspective, um, there have been a lot of conversations within the last year about the role technology has played. Um, certainly the role that it's played from everything from disinformation campaigns when it comes to fake news online to the role technology has played in and particularly in the way that it was leveraged um, with election interference, um, something that's obviously near and dear to to not just you as a, a citizen and candidate, but also um, the incumbent in the California 48th and, and his alleged involvement um, with, with the country of Russia and the government of Russia. Um, but then it's also played out in, in the sense of uh, the quality of life in America that maybe the the wealth that's created or the opportunities that's created by technology uh, are only really going to a limited few um, or perhaps beyond just a, an income gap, it's uh, actually creating different enclaves within American society in which people read what they want. They're sort of all constantly preaching and hearing from their own choir um, instead of building bridges. Uh, you know, you, you're a technologist, you're an entrepreneur. This is a community that you not only have leverage for social good, um, but is core to your identity and, and core to your, your campaign uh, stump and, and, and biography. And I'm just kind of curious, zooming out a little bit, where you think the role uh, of technology should be or ought to be um, when it comes to taking ownership for some of these challenges? And perhaps more broadly, um, as someone that that comes in from a tech background, um, is this something that you think should be core to what the your constituents would ultimately want to see you engage in? Or is it more about sort of the everyday um, challenges that they're facing when it comes to, you know, putting food on the table, accessing their medicine, um, and their and their goods in their daily lives? Is there a distinction there? Or is that sort of a false equivalence? 
I agree with you that there has been a disparity in income and wealth that has increased over several years. Um, and part of that is due to stagnant wages. Part of that is due to lack of access to opportunity. And so I'll speak to this both from my own personal experience and the work that I've been doing, but also my observations on um, the critical role that technology is playing and will play uh, going forward from this point on. So in my career, I have always tried to focus on technology for the greater good. And that is the through line of my life. When I joined eBay, it was because we were trying to democratize access to markets and payment systems, um, allowing more people to participate in the economy um, in this way informally, but giving them opportunities to supplement their income. When I was at Hotwire, it was around democratizing access to travel and helping budget travelers get access to great travel experiences um, by having flexibility as a currency. And when I was at Google.org, which was the world's first corporate hybrid philanthropic and social investment fund, um, we were looking at how can you use talent, Google capabilities, uh, funding for grants and investments to really attack large-scale, seemingly intractable issues like climate change, global public health, and poverty. And that was where I really learned how technology can either enable greater access and opportunity or further increase that divide. Uh, the digital divide, as well as the income and information divide. And, you know, when you're, when you're thinking about the role that technology plays in everyday life, it's so embedded and so ingrained now that it's almost hard to decouple it. When I was working with teams in Africa to map the continent of Africa, think about what a game changer it is to be able to map something and to now rely on maps as a common reference point for any number of additional activities. We were also working on infrastructure for cell phone access. And my job was to make sure that people living in extreme poverty were not left behind and had access to smartphones, both through shared ownership like the Village Phone program, which I worked on with Grameen, as well as free services, which I negotiated with the largest carrier in the continent of Africa, MTN, to make sure people living in zones of extreme poverty could access certain types of services on their mobile phone for free. So that information poverty wasn't exacerbated. Mm -hmm. Making sure that women had access to micro-franchise opportunities so that technology didn't leave women behind because they were often the ones who were not targeted by NGOs and technology companies because bias would bleed into those outreach programs and men always got access first, which meant men got access only. And when women get access, the community gets access. So rethinking simple things like outreach and access and programs for funding allowed people in communities to benefit more broadly. And that is an area of passion for me. When I think about here in the US and the divides that are occurring, we have a situation where the 0.01% of the population has seen tremendous increase in wealth and opportunity, where corporate America just got the biggest boondoggle of a lifetime with this tax plan, the largest tax cuts we've seen in ages, where we're adding $2 trillion to our national debt to allow shareholders to benefit from this tax cut. And yet, very few of them have done much more than nominal token employee bonuses and massive layoffs <laughs> and cuts to spending in areas that are critical. 
what we're seeing is corporate corporate environments benefiting from the economic policies of this country and the everyday worker falling further and further behind where incomes are not keeping pace with the cost of living and inflation. And families that were once considered middle class are falling further and further behind and becoming working class families, paycheck to paycheck, literally one pay paycheck from becoming homeless or one health crisis away from bankruptcy. That's not okay in this country. And when we think about technology in our election, uh, elections and electoral process, we know we know that Russia hacked into our elections. We know that fake news is now a genre. Yeah. And that social media platforms did not do enough, are not doing enough, have not been transparent enough, have not shared the data enough to help us rectify this wrong. And frankly speaking, the Senate bill that's being debated, which uh, was authored by Senator Klobuchar, which is called the Honest Ads, Honest Ads Act, is one step closer to creating a consistent framework for political advertising, which currently exists in television, radio, and print, but does not exist in social media and other tech platforms. And it must, because we know that Russians bought ads, those ads were disproportionately favorable to one candidate and harmful to another, Hillary Clinton. And we know that hundreds of millions of Americans were targeted and that it indeed did have an influence. That's not including all the other insidious tactics that were used to further discredit the one qualified candidate that we had in the general election and to prop up a candidate through hate and divisiveness and bias and ingrained stereotypes in order to sway the election in meaningful ways by targeting people with emotionally triggered ads that, again, feed into latent and blatant bias. That that's an uh, that that multifaceted or sorry multi pronged approach to thinking about this. Uh, I, I think it couldn't be more important now than ever for for the state of any um, public body, particularly because you can you specifically Rachel Payne can can view the challenges um, that a widening economic gap. Uh, creates and presents for the country, while also um, understanding truly and earnestly based off of your past experience coming from the technology sector, the opportunities that that it has to, you know, whether it's uh, Mohammed Yusuf's sort of micro lending approach, or whether it's, uh, you know, there's an outfit called Tech Congress run by Travis Moore, which places more technically minded folks into congressional offices so that way um, legislation can be built with with technical insight as opposed to just reactionary ideology um, I think that that positions you particularly well to be a force for good and and bridging a divide um, between tech and and government um, one one of the aspects of those bridges though repeatedly comes up in in this space of how technology is increasingly automated things or or is poised to increasingly automate things and I, I wanted to ask you particularly because you, you your father was a union guy um, you mentioned at the top of this conversation that um, labor arrangements and you know that guaranteed pension and and a guaranteed understanding of a workplace that was fit for purpose and that was valuing the decency and the integrity of its workers was sort of core to, to your upbringing. 
Um, you know, just yesterday, the California State Assembly um, and one of their privacy and consumer protection committees held an informational hearing around how automation, artificial intelligence, a lot of the, the technological possibility that could really challenge uh, some of the nation's or the world's most pressing challenges might also create a little bit of a, a challenge in terms of those bridges that you mentioned earlier between the progress of tech and the the labor community, particularly when it comes to offsetting jobs um, or when it comes to uh, replacing sort of the efficacy of unions outright. I'm curious from, you know, this is obviously only just one issue on the minds of voters in your district, but given that you you, you grew up with a father that um, was ingrained in that experience um, and you were also a, an advocate for investing in innovation and not taking step backwards, um, you know, the theme of the division in this cult- country right now is bridge building. And I'm curious how you would go about trying to bridge um, those disparate interests when it comes to labor and and more automated technologies that are poised to guide the country ahead? This is an excellent question, and it's exactly the conversation that I have been having with local unions here in my district and more broadly. And there is a real interest and willingness to come to the table to find opportunities that can advance our economy and our technological progress while also supporting our labor and the labor movement and the individuals within the labor movement who will need jobs and who, and and essentially that's everyone, by the way, in our country, because as our economic structure shifts and transforms, we have to be mindful of what that effect will be on everyone and the employment in this country. And it's going to happen very quickly. It's already happening. It's underway. My greatest disappointment with the Jobs Act that was passed last year was that it had nothing to do with creating jobs. In fact, it was a complete and perverse disincentive to creating jobs. The majority of corporations took this windfall of cash to invest in automation without an investment in training programs, Um, labor force migration, and the creation of jobs um, for those people whose jobs are about to disappear. And that's what was missing. I would like to see corporate tax cuts be tied to things like funding to train people to take jobs in new areas, to move people from sectors that are mature and dying out like fossil fuels to new jobs in the clean energy sector, to upskilling labor, people who have great experience and backgrounds, but need additional training and certification to take on jobs in emerging growth areas. And this is a huge opportunity for us if we take it, if we invest in it, and if we also tie job training and um, some of these um, very specific certification programs to actual job placement. And this is where the public-private partnership needs to happen where corporations also need to have a sense of responsibility, decency, and accountability. Where do we even hear the words corporate social responsibility anymore? We don't. It's because Wall Street shareholders and board directors and owners of of various um, funds that invest in large companies have no responsibility right now to the greater good. The focus is on exploitation and extraction of profits. And that is wrong. When I was joining Google.org on the founding team, there was a sense that technology has benefited certain people and that there's a responsibility to give back. 
and there's a responsibility to do more. And I don't see that today. There's no corporate foundation at Amazon or Facebook or Twitter. Where are these companies investing their dollars except in lining their pockets? And I have a problem with that. And, you know, I'm not even sure Google's doing enough on that front either. And I know that I'm, I'm probably speaking in, you know, a really harsh way, but somebody has to. I come from that business. I know what those gains look like, and I know how many people are being left behind. We're a country that has millions of jobs for software developers open and unfilled. And why is that? It's because we don't have the human capital investment in this country to develop the talent. It's because it's hard for that talent to migrate here. It's because we've undermined and denied the talent of almost half the population because of the disincentives for women to go into STEM careers, because of the bias and the stereotypes that prevent young women from learning more about computer science. It's because of the media messaging that perpetuates harmful stereotypes for people of color. And because as a woman entrepreneur, I've lived this myself, because only 2% of venture capital goes to women-run enterprises, and that's unacceptable. So we have to think more broadly about the responsibility that those who are advantaged and benefiting from the current economic structure, which is biased, the responsibility that they have to ensure that more people can stay ahead and not fall further behind. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that in terms of corporate giving and corporate engagement, because the, the identity of different actors right now is, is starting to transform. And by that, I mean, or more specifically, I mean that you're, you're sort of seeing this interesting rise of the CEO statesman or stateswoman. Um, you know, we saw Tim Cook famously go toe to toe with the FBI when the, when they wanted to unlock a cell phone, and you know he was focused on protecting customer privacy. Um, after the Trump administration withdrew from the Paris Climate Agreement, several companies, including Salesforce, um, spoke out against it. Uh, even even co smaller companies like Lyft or uh, Postmates or other entities have been partnering with organizations like the ACLU. Um, so, so I agree with you that you know companies need to invest and do more. Um, and, and we're seeing at the same time this little glimmer of engagement in which actors you wouldn't necessarily assume, um, companies, startups, uh, are, are starting to lean into matters of state. And, you know, that might be redefining the ecosystem of action because of what's going on in this moment in American history. It could be because they think it's good optics to engage in some of that CSR, corporate social responsibility type work. Um, but fundamentally, the, the identity of who plays in the arena of politics is shifting. And and you represent one of those phases. You know, we started our conversation um, reflecting a little bit about your upbringing, um, the lessons you learned from your mom um, and your family along the way. And I kind of want to conclude by asking you something about that identity. You were recently endorsed, uh, had a high-level endorsement by uh, the um, uh, w uh, the the political organizing and action group, uh, Emily's List, uh, for your candidacy in the California 48th. Huge, huge, huge congratulations to you on that, Thank by the you. way. Um, I also love the, the Chelsea Handler shout out on that endorsement. <laughs> Thank um, you. But, you know, with that comes a, you know, a certain sense of responsibility. I mean, obviously, as soon as you declared, I'm sure even months before you declared, this was a very, very serious and solemn contemplation you had to take 
take. Um, now that you have high-level groups like Emily's List and others um, going to bat for you, I'm sure it only becomes more serious in terms of what you want to stand up for, that sense of decency you want to restore, and and who you want to symbolically and substantively represent. And I, I guess my final question is, as you've stepped out of private life and you're leaning into pursuing public life, um, you've campaigned in different parts of not only the district, but you've met with folks all over the world um, and met with folks in various cities across the country to learn more, to fundraise, to get smart on these issues. What have you learned about America's identity um, as sort of a public candidate that you didn't know previously as a private citizen? So first of all, thank you so much, Vikram, <laughs> for your kind words. And um, yes, it is a solemn responsibility, and it was a soul-searching process to arrive at this decision. And frankly, I hadn't really thought about running for public office until what happened with the election and the current administration and realizing that as I looked around me, there just weren't enough people who represented me. And then as I looked at the candidates running, I realized that I wasn't sure they stood for my values and represented me either. And while there's a very, very impressive set of people running across all the districts in Orange County, I believe that there was room for a voice like mine, a person who has lived the American dream, is still living the American dream, who's benefited and who's also had hardships that were unique to my gender, to our income status growing up, to you know, my place where I, where I grew up and how, how we lived and the family structure I had and my education level and all those dynamics. And what I realized um, in running for office is that at the core of it, there's actually more that unites us than divides us, but that superficial factors, external factors are dividing us in ways that are distracting. The optics have taken hold. The reality is forgotten. And the optics today are ones of difference and of, of um, conflict. Right, and division. And division, yes. And what we need to remember is that most people who live in Orange County do so because they want their families to live in a safe environment that is high quality of living with good schools and good paying jobs. And that's pretty much the through line. What I've also realized is that there's a lot of fear. Um, right now, immigrant families are being terrorized, terrorized by ICE raids. And Orange County has the dubious distinction of being one of the only counties in America that has a direct relationship between ICE and the Sheriff's Department. And that is terrifying. Um, people are also scared because of change. And again, it's a lot easier to try and fight for power and privilege that you've histor historically enjoyed than it is to have to step up, own your own role and responsibility in creating a future for yourself and to have to compete on equal terms. That's harder, so it's easier to hate. And hate is a crutch. Hate is blinding, and it allows you to tell a story about yourself that makes you feel better by shaming and blaming others. And I've also realized that some people are concerned that the rise of women is at the expense of men, and that has absolutely nothing to do with it. What, what people don't realize is that there's another paradigm of power. It doesn't always have to be the power over other people, power at the expense of someone else. That's a very um, 
outdated notion of what power is. There's also collective power. There's the power to do. There's the power to be. And that is actually a much more inclusive and broad sense of ownership and power that allows us to all thrive, but not in doing so by putting others down. And the current administration is desperately clinging to an old notion of power and the power structure. And those who have power are always reluctant to give it up. I remember one of my favorite professors at Stanford Business School, George Parker, who used to say, where you stand depends on where you sit. And if you're sitting at the table, you don't want other people at the table because you believe that giving a seat to someone else means giving up one. But that's not true. And the longer we hold on and cling to that notion, the more behind we become because we're not actually moving at the pace of development and progress that the rest of the world is seeing. We're not modernizing as a country. And we are in the dark ages in terms of the belief systems that are dominating, particularly with Pence at the helm, who truly is uh, someone who belongs in a feudal era of, of society. We need to remember that our ability to advance as a country has just as much to do with investing in the talents and creating the opportunities for all of the people of America as it has to do with the economic foundation and the economic growth rate of our country. It's not just about investing in the tax breaks that make corporations more profitable and the 0.01%, uh, again, wealthier. It has more to do with investing in the full range of talents and creating a full set of opportunities for everyone here. Because when everyone thrives, that's when our fundamental economic engine is strong and grows and flourishes and more people benefit and our uh, future opportunities become much more real and sustainable. This sense of, of false trade-offs um, of of the rise of women being at the expense of men or the, the rise of immigrants being at the expense of multi-generational American families and jobs uh, is, is precisely what I think is creating this wedge of who measures up to be a American enough or who is worthy of certain policies or certain support structures or certain laws, whereas uh, Rachel Payne, a candidate for the 48th Congressional District, has decidedly uh, jumped in with a simple message that we choose both, that we do not have to pick and pit an us versus them mentality in fostering fear, but we can leverage technology, we can leverage a, a sense of, of support and respect for, for labor, we can leverage a sense of inclusivity with uh, the immigrant diasporas, um, and we can guide a future that that works for for all people as an operating mode in this district, in this race. Rachel Payne, thank you so much for being here. And for those that are interested in making sure that we choose policies that govern for all and not just for a limited few, um, get out there, uh, knock on doors for for the candidate, and and make sure your and voice donate. Is, is and donate. <laughs> Go ahead and donate and make sure your voice is heard. Thank you so much, Rachel, for joining American Thank Enough. You. I really appreciate it, Vikram. It was such an honor to be here with you today. Absolutely. Take care. Good luck out there. Keep fighting. <laughs> this has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. 
American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. The superior audio quality on Mouth Media Network is powered by Sennheiser. And as a listener, you can receive a 25% discount on virtually any headphone, microphone, and other high-quality audio product available to purchase directly on the Sennheiser website. Just visit Sennheiser.com and enter the code MOUTHMEDIASEN, that's MOUTHMEDIA, S-E-N-N, at checkout. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.